The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I think that was actually a little bit longer than 30 minutes, just in case you thought that 30 minutes was longer than you could sit. (laughs) Take a little time. I do want to share some thoughts about practicing throughout the day before we end at 9. But let's take a little time, as you've probably been finding, we learn a lot just hearing people report in about what's been difficult, what's been challenging. And in particular this week, it'd be nice to hear some people ask questions or report about trying out the walking meditation or trying out the loving-kindness practice at home, how that went for you, what you learned, what felt, felt right about it what was challenging, what seemed to get in the way. And of course, it's always appropriate to bring up any questions or comments just about the practice generally. So who'd like to begin? Any thoughts that you'd like to share with the group? I've been having a hard time finding a right place to meditate in my house. Maybe I'm making excuses, but... um, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't feel the same as here. Um, very difficult. And I was wondering if you had any ideas. Yeah, but we have, you know, whatever it is tonight, you know, we have 70 minds in one room and a place that people have been doing this practice for a lot. And whether we understand it or not, we're really affected by space. You know, we wouldn't have as easy a time practicing at the Mall of America, right? So your home space won't, it won't feel as easy, but that doesn't mean you're not learning a lot. You might actually be learning more, right? It just seems, the mind seems more wild or more distracted or whatever, however we might describe it. The question is, Are you learning? And remember, we learn a lot starting over. So, you know, we have this ideal that, you know, I put my attention on the present moment or the meditation object and it doesn't move until the end of the set. And that's, you know, that might be a nice meditation. But we learn a lot getting distraction, getting distracted, noticing that the mind is distracted, noticing the tendency to want to judge ourselves, noticing that that doesn't help, right? Noticing that the sensations of the body are already still here, right? Noticing that the distraction is already gone. Where did it go, right? It's like there's so much insight about the nature of the mind that happens in that activity of the mind getting lost in thought, remembering, oh yeah, I'm meditating, what do I do? Rain, rain, where's that sheet of paper? <laughs> you know, or we bring it up. Oh, yeah, just recognize. Okay, what's the mind knowing? Well, this is what the mind is knowing, you know? Thinking I'm a bad meditator. Having the thought I'm a bad meditator is like this, right? Just a thought being known. Okay, is there a feeling there? Oh, yeah, it feels there's a tightness. Okay, feeling the tightness is like this. Tightness is being known. So it's really okay if it's messy. It's not pleasant, you know, and it, that the downside of it not being pleasant is we don't want to do it. <laughs> it 
But it isn't that we're not learning, it's that we won't do it. So it, it is good to have friends who practice because they'll keep you true to your intention to you know, do your practice every day, go on retreats from time to time, do a little study from time to time, to kind of build the momentum. So it's, this is my week six plug. If you don't have friends, a friend at least, that is as serious about mindfulness practice as you are, find yourself a friend who's about as serious as you are with the practice. Because it is like uh, there's a whole subgroup in this lineage called Against the Stream. That's just what they call their organizations are around the country in different big cities mostly. And it's a really apt description because we're going against the stream, right? The stream, cultural stream is toward distractedness, superficiality, greed, anger, and delusion. And we're going the other, di- other way, you know, non-superficiality, non-distraction, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. That's against the stream. So we see that, and especially, you know, in numbers here, it's a little bit easier because all of our, you know, each of our intention to be present, it's sort of supporting everybody else's intention to be present. But when we're alone at home or in a different environment, it's just our feeble intention to be present, operating. And there's no kind of support, so not much support from others around us. So, you know, make sure that you have a conversation with the people you live with. Let them know how important this is so that when you shut the door, they know, you know, dog doesn't go in, kid doesn't go in. We leave the person alone for this period of time until they come out of the room. And it's not weird, it's just what you do, you know, and they, they understand it and they respect it. It's really important to ask for that. People will pretty much, you know, in, in a pretty short time, see that it's also good for them that you're practicing, you know. So if you have a partner that is initially suspicious, there's a great story in the, in the tradition that some of the senior teachers tell of somebody in the early community, you know, when people like Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein started teaching in the middle of the 70s, like 75, I think they started. But anyway, someone, you know, their parent was thinking that they've joined a cult or something like that. And this student of theirs said, you know, after sort of coming back, spending more time with her family, they, she said, um, they really don't like when I'm a Buddhist, but they really like it when I'm a Buddha, right? So like when I'm mindful, people totally are fine with what I'm up to. You know, when I'm like talking about Buddhism, you know, not so much. So generally speaking, people will appreciate the fruits of our practice, whether we ever mention what we're doing. And so, you know, but those of you with families and pets, you're really going to have to negotiate and be, and be persistent about wanting this place, this time. And you might even want to carve out a little corner of one room that's relatively uncluttered where you keep your chair and your, or your cushion. And ideally, you know, it's only used for this activity. So it, it starts to have a feeling like when you see it in the corner of your living room or wherever you have it in your bedroom, it reminds you because it's only used for that thing.
And then, you know, whatever you like to have around, you might have a few of your meditation books there, or some of you might, you know, who have that particular kind of personality might want to have an altar, and, you know, you just decide what elements on the altar would actually be supportive of your practice, sort of a reminder of being serene, a reminder of being present, a reminder of being calm, and put that on your altar. Yeah, thanks for asking that. What else comes to mind? What challenges, what successes? Yeah, Scott, please. My name is Scott. And uh, I just want to relate um, the, the, you know, the, uh, uh, what's the story that about stepping in the pothole? You know, and then eventually you realize you know, you're stepping in the pothole as you step in it, and eventually you go take another route. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I've, uh, you know, I've had some discussions lately about some things, and and I'm finding that that after I, for several weeks, been stepping in that pothole, not not even knowing I was in the pothole, but now I'm starting to realize I'm in the pothole, and the mindfulness is great because I I go, okay, well, that's just the thought being known. And then I can, it just vanishes and, and I move on. So looking forward to the stepping over the pothole. I can, um, yeah. but it's, it's been very helpful. And it's a little bit like they do in the 12-step programs. I'm sure some of you have done some of the 12-step work. And one of the things they do is they start by acknowledging where they're at. You know, now I'm not saying it's a perfect system, when we're lost in thought, when we're identified with a reactive pattern, like, oh, poor me. You know, for some of us, that's a, a pretty regular visitor to our mind, right? Oh, poor me. Or being impatient, you know, aversive, critically minded. Or being sent- overly sentimental and hopeful and, oh, it's going to be fine, or being Minnesota nice, or whatever your particular pattern might be, we can't, those patterns have a lot of momentum. We can't just like snap our fingers and then be free of these personality patterns that have been wound up for years, right? But we can do what Scott's talking about, is we can more quickly and clearly acknowledge the mind is caught in this pattern or the image that Scott was using, you know, I'm in the hole again. Oh yeah, I'm in the hole and I'm responsible, right? Instead of I'm in the hole and somebody else is responsible. Because the key is if we don't take responsibility for how our mind is in this moment, we're likely going to sit there and think about who's at fault. And, you know, it might be God's at fault or my partner's at fault or the whole world's at fault. Or, But we keep uh, avoiding doing what can be done to change the way it is in the mind. So we have to take responsibility. It doesn't mean we're totally in control. It just means that we have to take responsibility for what the mind can do right now. And what do we mostly do, right? The big emphasis is, can the mind see this? Can the awareness 
the stability of awareness, honestly acknowledge it's like this, it feels like this, it looks like this, it is like this now. Can we be intimate? Out of compassion and kindness, can we acknowledge it's like this now? That's the intervention. Not judging ourselves, not blaming somebody, but meeting the experience. It's what we never or almost never do. We're, we're busy trying to make it different than it is, which is often the cause for why it's like this now. Like if we're feeling tight, often we're feeling tight because we're trying to make things other than the way they are. But when we meet things as they are with compassion and wisdom, it starts to feel differently. It starts to appear differently. Yeah, thanks, Scott, for bringing that up. Mark, if I, if I could. Sure, please. I, was gonna, I should say that I've also been trying the rain with that also. And that's been very helpful, too, because um, when we get to the um, I part, uh, I, then, I don't know, just, it is very helpful to do that. And then the non-attachment after that. Yeah. And these little trainings like the acronym RAIN are really important to memorize. Because when you really feel lost in like, I don't know what, I took this six-week class and I don't know the first thing about what mind, what, what is mindfulness? And then you can just, oh yeah, well I know there's this thing called RAIN and I know how RAIN is spelled, R-A-I-N-R. Recognize the present moment, right? And by the there are still some handouts up here if you didn't get one, you know. Okay, recognize what the mind is knowing. Accept it. Allow it to be what it is. Allow it to express itself. That's really the interest, you know? Being the space in which this thing is, this activity of the body, right? The five physical senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Letting that activity be known or the activity of the mind, letting it be known, that's interest. And the non-attachment is the fruit of doing those first three. When we recognize and accept and are interested, open, allowing it to be what it is, to express itself, then we'll realize this possibility of non-attachment. It's just nature doing its thing, causes and conditions, the activity of the body-mind, and we realize we can just let it be. That's the non-attachment or the not grasping, not controlling. That's the end in the rain. Yeah, thanks again, Scott. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, please, over here. Uh, Stan, uh, what about falling asleep? Is it common to fall asleep doing this? Raise your hand if you get drowsy sometimes when you're meditating. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, generally we swing between being restless and anxious and being dead to the world, right? (laughs) And part of that is just because we're just living in a frazzled way and we need to come into balance. But even if you come into balance, you'll see that swing still happening. Because it's how the mind, like, so assuming that you're now in balance, you've gotten enough sleep, you're, you don't have kind of terrible things happening in your life that 
or causes for the anxious restlessness. But still you find yourself at times in a sit, even within one sit, times, moments when there's a lot of anxiety and restlessness and moments when the mind is just like doing the nod, falling asleep. Because it's a deeply ingrained habit that when we want to avoid something, we get really uh, hypervigilant in a way that we're sort of spinning. Because when we're spinning in thought and a kind of a restless, anxious thinking, we don't have to feel what we feel, right? Because we're like in the surface level of like worrying, planning, strategizing. So we're not really exposed to the way it is in the moment. Or we shut down and go to sleep or go into a trance-like state. So especially once your practice gets a little momentum, you'll see that navigating this energetic quality of the mind is really important between too much energy and not enough energy. And you'll just start getting more and more skillful The general principle is when you need more energy in your mind, ask nicely for the mind to do more work. Because what energizes the mind is work. We always think, I can't ask my mind to do more because I'm sleepy. But it actually works that way. The way you bring energy into the mind is you ask your mind to be more interested, to see more. So like, let's say you're doing a traditional meditation like whole body awareness, like we often did, right? Breathing in, feeling the whole body. Breathing out, feeling the whole body. Well, how many little pixels of sensation is the knowing mind knowing? Is it sort of, sort of in a superficial way, sort of generally knowing the body is there? Or is it like really connecting with the different whole body, different predominant sensations in the body, really knowing that sensation of the sits bone making contact with the cushion or the hands touching or the coolness of the breath coming in, the warmth of the breath going out. Because if you, and is the mind, is the attention really sustaining moment by moment by moment? Because if you're a little bit more demanding with the attention, that will perk up the energy. If you're kind of superficial, okay with the attention, the awareness being sort of generally in the vicinity of the present moment, that the absence of vigilance, the absence of persistence, the absence of refinement and um, like really connecting um, will support sliding into sleep. Because... Tranquility, we get pretty good at tranquility, but tranquility without interest brings us to sleep. And that's where the two middle letters in RAIN, acceptance, right, the A, allowing acceptance, that's if you're really anxious. Highlight that instruction. Interest, highlight that instruction if you're sleepy. What else is being known? What else is here? Like, oh yeah, I'm breathing in. Is like, breathing in is like this, but breathing in isn't a, a concept, right? It's a infinitely diverse uh, array of sensation, right? Breathing in isn't one sensation. It's like there's so many sensations in breathing in. It isn't 
there is no way the mind could actually connect with every single pixel of that. But to be more demanding will really make the mind more alive, more energized. Being more sort of general and accepting will make the mind more tranquil. Right, so you want to go to bed at night, you're lying there in bed, superficially aware of the breath coming in, superficially aware of the breath going out. It could be a nice, soothing way to support the falling asleep at night. But in meditation, we're really modulating interest with acceptance to keep the energy in a nice balance. Yeah, thanks for the question. What else have you been learning or comments you have? Anybody try the walking meditation or loving-kindness practice at home? Remember, there's some more detailed instructions in one of the handouts for both the walking and the loving-kindness practice you can get on the website. Yeah, please. Why don't you wait for the mic, though? Because we're recording the class, and this, the mic will allow other people to hear what you're asking or saying. Um, so I have a question, which is that now, like, I feel like, meditation used to be very frustrating and now it's getting to a point where it's sometimes rewarding and that can make me feel very good but that feels and it's like an attached way that it's good and I don't know whether the good feeling is something that I should be paying attention to and trying to like hang on to or whether it's just a symptom of the fact that I was frustrated in the past and now there's sometimes an absence of frustration and that is what feels good if that makes Mm. sense yeah yeah And it's all of that, what you described, and you're, the reason that you were able to describe what you described means that you're seeing things about the mind. Like you're noticing that when things settle down, when there's more continuity of awareness, it's pleasant in an inner sort of way. And uh, you're noticing that when there's pleasantness, the ego, you know, the mind, the habit of the mind is to grasp it, to want to hold on to it to want it to be even better, right? And probably, you didn't mention this, probably you see that when the mind does try to grasp it, in a way you'll lose it. Because the cause for the peace or the bliss or whatever pleasant experience you're experiencing, the cause for it isn't the attachment or wanting to hold on to it. That's the cause for getting tight. What is the actual cause for the pleasantness? Because when you discover that, what actually led to it, supports it, causes it to get deeper or stronger or more expansive, when you see the cause, you can do more of that, right? Right? So if you find what leads to more equanimity, more peace, more stability of awareness, more calm, more inner happiness, It's totally appropriate to aim the mind in ways that support those wholesome qualities getting stronger, more common, more consistent in the mind. But being greedy is never one of the supporting causes for wholesome states. Greed is the cause for being tight, right? So... All forms of aversion, and you should just check this out. We all need to keep checking this out. All forms of aversion, hate, fear, boredom, impatience, and all the different flavors of aversion cause the mind-body to be tight. All forms of greed, 
wanting, hoping, are causes for the mind and body to get tight. They're causes for suffering. Now it's common, it's deeply habituated to grasp pleasant. So the mind is going to do it, but it's because it hasn't connected the dots and realizes that greed doesn't cause this pleasant feeling to get stronger or last. It ruins it. So when you really see that, you'll feel the impulse to get greedy, to want to hold on to it, but wisdom will intervene and say, honey, that doesn't help. If you really want this to last or this pleasant feeling to get stronger, study the proximate causes. What allowed this peacefulness to arise? What did the mind do? How was the mind relating that led to this peaceful, tranquil, light, buoyant quality in the mind. Yeah, and that would be great to report. If you have some insight already from just having studied your mind, what were the supporting causes? Do you have a sense? What allowed the mind to fall into that more peaceful place? I think just practicing and like awareness, relaxation, (laughs) just that. So let that be kind of homework for yourself. Till you get to the point where you really see more clearly what is the mind doing that actually allows that to happen? Because then you can do it more intentionally and you'll, you'll learn how to do it more skillfully. Like any skill, you know, you make a great meal, but you, you're just a space cadet. You, don't, you forget how much salt you put in or how long something fried. Or, do you know what I mean? So you can't replicate it. So if you have a good sit, you know, a good meditation, it'd be really good to have been paying attention to what the mind did before that so-called nice experience happened. What was the mind doing? What was the mind not doing? Because everything's lawful. It just doesn't like fall from outer space, the good sit, right? Everything in the world is a conditional unfolding. There are always supporting causes and conditions. So to whatever degree how the mind was relating, the qualities of mind that were being developed or supported, that helped that, supported that, calming down, settling down, that would be good to know. Thanks for bringing that up. Time for maybe one more. Yeah, you want to pass the mic over here? Right in front. Hi, um, my name's Kasha. I just wanted to briefly go back to your description of hypervigilance and then shutting down in regards to the walking meditation and the loving-kindness meditation as someone who's stuck in either or. Um, I've done walking meditation in the past, and I've found that to be very grounding and sometimes what I need to get out of the hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. With the sitting meditation, you'd mentioned the A and the I being a good way to sort of come to the the middle Mm -hmm. as someone who's trying to stay more in the middle or find that middle and practice would you suggest doing more of the walking more of the loving kindness and then when doing just a sitting type to do the a and the i like focus on that more yeah i mean it sounds just the way you described your practice that you already kind of have a sense and i would really think of it as a medicine chest and not, not just in terms of different things you can do when you're sitting, but you have walking, 
you know, so you have this array of medicines. And because what we're doing isn't meditating. What we're doing is cultivating present moment awareness all life long. And I'm going to talk about that in just the last five minutes of the class tonight. We're interested in the continuity of present moment awareness all of our waking hours. And the formal sitting time is just the time to develop the habit in a more strategic, intentional way, right? So we have this medicine chest, different ways of working with our mind and body that supports the continuity of awareness. And we have some of the things in the medicine chest help to build energy when the energy's low. And some of the things in the medicine chest help to calm the energy when the energy's high, right? Like the deep breathing we did at the beginning and and some of the yoga practices, you know, there's the deep three-part breathing. is a very tranquilizing practice, whether you do the sort of formal yogic deep three-part breathing or just do it like I was suggesting where you take your time, really slow it down in a relaxed way and you fill the lungs to their capacity. And you just, as you do that more, you'll naturally do the so-called yogic three-part breathing because that's the natural way to breathe deeply. So there's many techniques, and over time you'll learn more and more techniques that you'll put in your medicine chest. Um, and that's why like the loving kindness and the walking, which are you know, complementary practices to a lot of what we did during the six-week class, you want to check them out now because otherwise when you need them, they won't be in your medicine chest because you never learned how to use them and what they do to your mind. Like what particular strength or weakness, the different techniques. Like another thing we have in our medicine chest is how to use meditation phrases or meditation words. You don't have to use words when you're meditating like breathing in sensitive to the whole body or thinking is being known or this is being known. But that's a useful technique to have in your chest your medicine chest, because like, you know, when you're sleepy, if you ask your mind to label, to actually mentally name what the mind is knowing, that's work, and that work will energize the mind. If you're anxious and already have too much energy, don't use mental labels, except maybe from time to time in a kind way to acknowledge, you know what, honey, anxiety's like this. It's just anxiety being known. But to be demanding your mind to note every phenomena that's being known when you're already anxious is just going to make you crazy, right? So knowing how to use the techniques and what flavors, you know, a lot of places where you'd learn meditation, they just tell you what to do and they wouldn't tell you a lot of different strategies. But in this, you know, what we call Vipassana, our insight meditation here in the West, The general mode is you're given way too many techniques and you flounder, you feel like you're floundering a little bit because you don't know what to do. But over time, you'll become much more independent in your practice sooner because you'll learn how to manage having a mind, how to keep uh, steering this beast of a mind towards more stable present moment awareness, more continuous, stable present moment awareness. And it will really change your life. 
you have to be self-reliant and you have to learn through trial and error how to keep the mind right in the middle. I'll just end with this story from Ajahn Chah. You know, people would, he was a very well-known Thai Buddhist monk, meditation teacher, trained a lot of Westerners who are now quite well-known in the West, like people like Jack Kornfield was a monk with Ajahn Chah back in the late 60s and early 70s. And um, people would go to him and say, you know, you told this person to do this and you told this other person to do this and they're just the opposites and you're making me crazy. Like, what is this thing called meditation or mindfulness? And Ajahn Chah said, well, when people are veering off to the left or to the right, I say, go left, go left, go left. And when they're veering off to the left, I say, go right, go right, go right. You know, so that's what we need to do to ourselves. Like when our practice is veering off this way, we need to take out an intervention like loving kindness. Oh, honey, sometimes it's like this. It's okay. It's okay. I care about how hard it is right now. I care about what it feels like right now. I care enough to be present. I care enough to forgive yourself, forgive myself for being an imperfect human being. Right? Wouldn't that be a stabilizing intervention when we have a lot of self-hatred, a lot of judgment? So you, you pull that out and you bring in the kindness or the appreciation or you're having a lot of pleasantness in your practice. right? And then you bring out another thing. Like maybe you bring out impermanence. Yeah, it's like this now. It's really nice now. But this too will come and go, you know, as an antidote for getting attached to it. That's just one thing. I mean, there are many different strategies you might use at that point. But just if you notice like the real hunger, like, oh, it's always going to be this way. I always want it to be this way. You just remind yourself, no, this arose due to causes and conditions and it will change. All things come and go. It's, It's beautiful. Appreciate the beauty of the mind right now, the peacefulness of the mind but everything comes and goes. And then it might last a little longer because you're not like getting confused by the greed, getting attached. So I can't talk about how to practice in daily life, but it's all nicely written out in the handout for week six. So we'll make you go back and track that down. But the important thing is to be creative and to really, like I said a few minutes ago, Think about your day at work, your day with the family, cleaning up, hanging out with friends as your practice. As a teacher, like, what does the continuity of mindfulness look like when you're getting up and walking out of a meditation class and driving home or riding the bike home? Like, what does that look like? Or what is mindfulness, continuity of mindfulness, look like when you walk in the door and you greet your pet or you greet the person you live with or when you look at the computer you know or when you look in the t- into the fridge what is mindfulness like there what do you see oh greed is being known or aversion judgment is being known right i mean it's such a rich place we really want a whole lifestyle of mindfulness. That's what's going to change our life. I mean, as good as it is to practice every day for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or 10 minutes, it's 
how this leaks into the whole life that really matters. In a way, your formal sitting practice is you're planting seeds in your mind that are going to just sprout during the day. You just have spontaneous, already happening, I'm assuming, spontaneous moments where you're just aware, surprisingly, like in places you haven't actually been awake, present moment awareness. Oh, this is what it's like now. This is being known. And it will just increase. The more seeds you plant, the more moments of mindfulness you have during the day. So if you haven't, on your way out tonight, grab a, take a fall newsletter, see some of the other programs at the center. Please don't be shy about doing the day-long and half-day retreats or signing up for the residential retreats that we do. Um, if you feel like this center is convenient and you like kind of what goes on here, Get yourself on the weekly email list. We've trained ourselves in the office not to send out more than one email a week to the community. But um, a lot of information only goes out through the weekly email, especially like about our residential retreats and when registration begins for them. So if you want to know more about what's going on, you probably need to get on that weekly email list. You can do that on our website, or there's a sheet of paper under the bulletin board you can pick up. I think I've mentioned how the center works. Everything is offered freely. Teachers are supported from the donations that are offered. You know, and as well, we use the money, of course, to pay the paid office staff and take care of the building and our retreat property in western Wisconsin. So that's a place you can go on retreat, take a look at all the information on the website. Everything is explained there. So it's been really nice being together these six weeks. Remember... You've just had a taste. The idea is to keep doing the practice, get friends, get involved. That's really how you can keep it going. And just check in with me if you ever have questions. Or The other staff teacher now is Shelley Graff, our associate director here at Common Ground. So one of us is usually around to answer questions or you can make appointments if something big seems to be coming up in your practice and you want to talk to somebody about it, just contact the office and either Shelley or I will be able to meet with you. So good luck with your practice. Hope to see you around. If you have a moment, uh, help take the folding chairs down the stairs to the right and to the right.